0: We have an assignment due today, a homework assignment. And I do put up due today, just as a reminder. I, it does mean seven or 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. So if you haven't turned it in, I know a number of you turned it in. You can turn it in after class or before, right between class and lab, if you want to do that. If you're going to submit it, again, don't email it. Go into D2L. There's a Dropbox link at the top. And there's a Dropbox for homework assignments. Just save it as homework 1 and upload it there. You do have to upload it. You can't type it into the box and submit it. It won't let you. You have to attach a file in the Dropbox to do it. So it won't let you type it all in there. If we have to do that, type it in. You've got to attach something. It can be a junk file. But if you don't attach something, it will not permit you to submit. And I think it's just a security method to make sure that you didn't just submit a blank assignment. But you can submit that. Again, if you're working on them tonight, that's fine. As long as I get them by tomorrow morning, I'll look at those, and I'll have them back. Probably within a week. I should have them back by next. I hope to have them back next Friday. I try to make sure I get things back within a week if I at all can. Quiz one is up and should be available now. Um, I don't think anybody took it in this class. I didn't get a chance to check this one. But I haven't quite finished chapter one. So probably a better idea to wait until after class today. Then I'll have covered all of the material that will be on it. And that will be available through Wednesday. So I will put a last reminder up on the board Wednesday that says if you didn't take it this weekend, you have another chance to to do it. Um, The quizzes, they're they're online so they're they're open book. You're allowed to use your books but don't waste a lot of time because they're still they take about 15 minutes in class. That's about what I give you online so you're not going to have five minutes to look up each question but if you have books or notes or those review sheets that I've provided, if you have those you can certainly have them with you when you're doing it to remind yourself of something but again just don't spend lots of time searching for one answer because You know, or save that till the end. Answer the 11 you can figure out and then go back and work on the 12th with the time that's remaining. Because it will cut you off and not let you save anything after the deadline is passed. But but anything you save before is still good, but it will cut you off after after that time. Exam 1 in class here on next Friday. So we will do that on Friday, covering chapter 0 through 2. Least chapter 0 will be done with 1 today and starting on 2. And as much of two as we get through by Wednesday is what it will cover. So if we don't quite get through all of it, I'll cut off the last little bit. That way we can still do the exam on on that Friday. I'm thinking the best way to do it, because the exams vary in how long people, labs do a little bit too, but exams vary in how long it takes people to do them. I'm leaning towards doing the lab period first that week and then the exam, in the, the exam in the lab period. And that will give you the chance that if I have people who finish the exams in 20 minutes, and I have people who take all 50 minutes to do it. And either is fine, but that way I'm not holding somebody back for it. So if you're done with classes after that, you're, you'd, be, you'd be done. So we'll do lab next Friday. We'll do a lab at 9 at this time. And we'll do the exam the second lab period. That way when you're done with the lab period, that way you don't have to come back after the, after the exam to take the lab. So. Again, I say people finishing that, if you'd want to take the whole time, you're more than welcome to use the entire class period. I have some people who want to wait to the last minute and double check everything. That's great. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter to me. I'll be here for the whole class period anyway. But I just want to let you know that you have, you'll have that option. First solar observations are due the next week on the 14th. And homework two is up on D2L or should be. I did a double check that. I checked it for the other class and I didn't check if yours, but it should be up on D2L. I'll take a look at that between classes. And make sure it's up there. You can access that now. It should be in lesson, three, in lesson three. And I'll bring copies of it on Wednesday. I didn't bring any copies today. So I'll bring those on Wednesday. If you want to jump start on it and work on it on the long weekend, if you just want to forget about astronomy for the long weekend, you'll get it on Wednesday and you'll still have more than a week to do it. But it's, it is up there and available right now. And that will cover the next couple of chapters. Questions? No, no, no. OK. Picture of the day for today. The halo of the cat's eye. So this is actually a planetary nebula. You see? Planetary nebula. A planetary nebula, this is what the sun will be in a couple billion years. This will actually be the sun in a couple billion years. This is very large. If you look at the whole area of this, this is about six light years across. Meaning that if you put the sun at at one edge, do the Sun at one edge, Alpha Centauri would be way out over here someplace. Being very big. I mean Alpha Centauri being the nearest star but still there's a lot of space between that. What a planetary nebula is, it's a star near the end at the end of its life. A star much like the Sun. And what happens is it gets big. When it exhausts its fuel in the core, the core starts to collapse but the outer layers grow and get larger and larger. So it gets bigger so the Sun at some point will get twice as large as it is, and three times, and ten times, it'll eventually encompass the orbit of Mercury, it'll get larger and encompass the orbit of Venus, and it will encompass the orbit of the Earth. So we'll be gone. Well, we'll be long gone in five billion years anyway, but we'll actually be part of the Sun. The Sun will have expanded large enough that we would be inside it and the Earth itself would get burned up and swallowed by the Sun. Might get out as far as Mars, that's a little more borderline. The outer planets would still be there, but certainly conditions would change drastically with the Sun being that much larger. What happens when a star gets that large, you got a very, very big star, the total gravity really hasn't changed. You push things further and further away, so they're not held as tightly. And when the star gets unstable, it pushes off the layers of the star. So there's the outermost layers, of the star way out here, that have expanded greatly out into space, again, several light years away from the star itself. Closer in, this is actually, the Cat's Eye Nebula is actually this one right here? Is actually the very central portion of this nebula. That's the nebula that we know as the Cat's Eye. And in fact, on Sunday, that was specifically the picture of the day as well. And that's looking at just the inner core. A little prettier than the other one. That's the inner core, those are the the layers of the star that have been pushed off into space. So you can sort of imagine a little circle here that this is just an outer layer. All those outer layers, what we see of the sun right now, would be pushed off into space. And some distant astronomer looking back at it in several billion years would be able to see maybe something similar to this. So the interesting portion of this one is that not only does it have that little core that we were looking at, we zoomed in way down there, but it has this big halo it's sort of telling astronomers that maybe we didn't completely understand what was going on with planetary nebula because they started a lot longer. There was more eras of, un, of instability. Because you can almost see. Look at where the material is out here now, way out here. There's sort of an empty section in here where no material was pushed out and then material has been pushed out again. So it may happen in stages that one point, is, uh, uh, one outer layer of the Sun, one part of the outer layer was pushed off into space. and then. Hundreds of thousands of years later, another one was pushed off into space. And again, they'll both slowly expand out until they just diffuse out into interstellar space. So we're still learning, even things the planetary nebulae that have been observed for hundreds of years, we're still learning a lot more details about them. So a few pretty pictures there. And we'll talk a little bit more about these when we get to the stellar evolution chapter in this, cla- in this class. Questions? Questions? No? All right, let me pull this up, and then we'll finish up chapter one today. We were looking at Newton's laws. Let me just pull it up here. There, we'd gone over Newton's three laws of motion. and we'd done Kepler's laws of planetary motion.. Oops. Error, error. OK. Good enough. OK. So we'd gone over Newton's three laws. First, first law. Said that an object that starts moving, moving in a straight line at constant speed, wants to keep moving, and that an object at rest is going to stay at rest. Second law said that there was a force on an object, that the force and the, acceler- if, the force is, I mean, if a force is exerted, if I push, an ob- push on an object, that its acceleration, how fast it's going to move, depends on its mass. The bigger the mass, the slower it's going to move. The smaller the mass, the quicker it's going to move. And Newton's third law says that object A exerts a force on object B and object B exerts an equal and opposite force on object A. We like that one. That's the one that keeps you sitting in the chair, right? You're sitting on the chair. You're pulling down with gravity. That chair is pushing up on you with exactly the same amount of force. If it didn't, if you're pushing down on the chair harder than it's pushing up on you, you're sitting on the floor, right? You break the chair. If it pushes up harder, then you're pushing down on it, well there's a force, now you're going to move up. So anti-gravity, it's going to push you up into the air. So the chair is very smart. It knows, you know, depending on who's sitting on it, it knows exactly how much force to give to keep them sitting right there. But that's essentially Newton's third law. If it didn't work, again, you wouldn't be able to sit in the chair. If that chair didn't exert the same force on you, there'd be a force and you'd be sitting on the ground. And then if the ground wasn't sitting in the force, we'd all be crushed down to a great black hole at the center of the earth. OK, so those are Newton's three laws of motion. The other law that we're going to look at is talking about gravity. On the Earth's surface, the acceleration due to gravity is about constant. It varies a little bit depending on how high you are above, you know sea level. At sea level, it's one value. If you get a little bit closer. If you're below sea level, then it's be a little bit bigger. If you're up on the top of a tall mountain, it'd be a little bit smaller. Doesn't change a whole lot anywhere on the surface of the earth. You're talking tiny fractions of a change. It could be measured, but nothing that would change. And it's always directed towards the center of the earth. So it doesn't matter where you're standing on the earth. I mean, if you think about it right now, we're at a latitude of forty degrees. So if you just imagine standing at a ball at 40 degrees, you know, we're all standing off at some odd angle like this. Those in Australia would be standing upside down. I mean, they're standing, their, their feet are pointing up and their heads are pointing down. It doesn't feel like that wherever you are because gravity works in one direction. It always works towards the center of the Earth. So, you know, it feels like we're standing on the top of the Earth right now because we're directed straight up and down, but really because of gravity, we're really pointing out at a, at a big angle, you know, almost halfway, halfway between the ground and, the, and straight up. But it's always directed towards the center of the Earth. So when you throw something up, gravity will always pull it back down. Now, if we look here, this is what Newton gave us: is the law, his universal law of gravitation. And he said for two, any two objects with mass—that's what we mean by massive objects—means that they have mass. Doesn't mean that they're super heavy objects. Doesn't have to be stars or planets; can be any two objects as long as they have some mass with them. The gravitational force is proportional to the product of their masses, so depends on how massive each one is, divided by the square of the distance between them. And up there, squeezed in there in between them, a little bit small, is his actual equation which tells what that force is between any two objects. G is just a gravitational constant, some specific number. M1 is the mass of your first object. M2 is the mass of the second object. R is the distance between the centers of those two objects. So if you want to calculate the force between the Earth and the Moon, mass 1 would be mass of the Earth. Mass 2 would be mass of the Moon. R is just how far it is from the center of the Earth to the center of the Moon. All gra- gravity works as though it's concentrated at the center of an object. So that's why we you can use the center distance. It doesn't matter whether the, unless you have objects that are real big and real close together, it doesn't matter. Everything acts like it's at the center of of that object. And that works for any two objects in the universe. And you'll see it doesn't matter. I said m1 was the earth and m2 was the moon. The equation doesn't care whether you switch those two. So the force of gravity that the earth pulls on the moon is going to be exactly the same as the force of gravity that the moon pulls on the earth. The force is the identical between those two is two objects. Earth pulls on the sun, sun pulls on the earth, exactly the same amount. The gravitational force dep- also depends on how far away the objects were. So what it means is that if objects are twice as far away, We were to take the Earth and move it from one astronomical unit away from the Sun to two astronomical units away from the Sun. The gravitational force is going to change. G doesn't change. We didn't change the masses in this case. We said they're still the same. But we changed the distance. We changed it from one AU to two AUs. And that means the force is going to be four times smaller twice as far away, four times smaller amount of force. And that's what this r squared means. So two times further away, two squared is four. It's going to be one fourth the amount of force. Three times further away, one ninth the force. Four, five times further away, one twenty fifth the force. So it's going to vary depending on how far, how far away. So if we could move the Earth twice as far away, the gravitational force drops down quite quickly. So the force gets much less and less as you move further away from an object. Conversely, if you move closer, if you can move the Earth twice as close to the Sun, so instead of 1 AU, move it into half an AU, then the force is going to be 4 times larger. Now, I don't give you the equation. You might—I don't think I gave it to you on a homework. I don't think I'm giving it to you on the homework either. But I could give you that on a homework. I might give it to you, and we might do something with it in the lab. But in terms of a quiz or anything else, I'd, I might ask you this kind of number. If we double the distance or triple the distance, that's the kind of number I'd ask you to be able to remember for the equation. You won't have to plug in the value for g and masses and scientific notation into a calculator for, for a quiz or for an exam. But I do ask you to be able to understand these, that if we double or triple or have numbers as to how the, how the force would change, so that you're understanding that it's really you might be getting twice as far away, but the force isn't half as much, it's one quarter as much. And it changes drastically like that, so it drops off very, very quickly as you get further away from the object. All right. So what does this do? Well, remember Newton's first law said that an object in motion, especially in a straight line at constant, wants to move in a straight line at constant velocity unless there's an outside force acting on it. So ignore the fact that there's the Sun there, there's our little Earth. The Earth wants to move in this direction. It wants to go in a straight line. It doesn't want to go around the Sun. It wants to go in a straight line. But the Sun is exerting a force on it, pulling it inward, so that instead of following this line, it ends up here. Now it wants to go this way. The sun is still pulling it in, so it's going to end up here. It's essentially falling around, constantly falling around the sun. So the Earth is constantly falling around the sun. The moon is constantly falling around the Earth. It's just moving fast enough that it never will land. It'll keep going around in an orbit. But it's essentially just in a state of free fall around the, around the object. And that's due to, again, Newton's laws. Newton says it wants to move in a straight line at a constant speed. So it's going to do that. If you get rid of the sun, it's going to get dark. going to get cold. But the Earth's also going to go tearing off in a straight line out here at a constant speed until it hits something else. Until it passes close to another star, which it may never do. It passes close to something else. You know, it may never pass anything, but it would just head out in a straight line at a constant speed, whatever speed it's moving at that instant, once the sun disappeared. <coughs> but that's the gravitational pull of the sun. Again, this is Newton's version of it. It's a force between the sun and the earth. Einstein does it a little bit differently, and we'll look, about that, look at that in a couple chapters, into how, gra- how gravity works under Einstein, which is not really a force like this. It's that the sun distorts space around it. And the Earth just moves in a straight line in the distorted space. So instead of space being nice and smooth, as like a piece of paper, it's a, a bent piece of paper. And the Earth has to follow a different type of path. But again, we'll look at that in a little bit more detail now. For Newton, this is what we're looking at. All right. These objects, when we talk about the Earth orbiting the sun, or the moon orbiting the Earth, that's really wrong. They actually orbit each other. The moon, and the, earth, the moon orbits the earth. The earth actually orbits the moon at the same time. They actually both orbit along their, around their center of mass. And what a center of mass is, is kind of demonstrated here with the seesaw. If you have two people of equal mass sitting on a seesaw, it's going to balance. If you put two people on one side, it's not going to balance unless you move them in significantly closer. The more mass you have on one side, the closer they have to be to your little pivot point and the further away the other person has to be in order to get it to balance. This would be what we call the center of mass. Now when we look at two stars or a star and a planet they don't orbit around, one doesn't orbit around the other they both orbit around the center of mass of the system. And I'll show you that in a diagram here. If we look at two objects in the top one where the masses are exactly the same they orbit around that, and we see lots of stars like this. They go around. They're never going to intersect, because they're always on opposite sides of the orbit. They're always going to be right opposite that common, uh, common focus as it's labeled there. So they're never going to crash, even though their orbits, orbits intersect. They're never, actually going to, they're never going to intersect themselves. But they're both orbiting around that. Now that's the extreme case where everything is both the same size. As you start to increase masses, Here's a mass of one unit and two units, so this has more mass. It's not going to move as much. It's going to move a little bit less. This is going to move a little bit more because it has less mass. Its acceleration is not going to be as large. Going back to Newton's second law. Finally, if you go to the more extreme case where you've got a a star and a planet orbiting it, the star or sun has a much, much larger mass than that poor little planet out there. So the center of mass isn't at the center of the sun. It's a little bit outside of that. And the sun orbits around that too, as does the planet. When you look at it, if there's a big difference in mass as there is with the earth and the sun, that center is not all that far away from the center of the sun. But it's still there. And it's sort of like what I mentioned last time when we talked about you know, dropping something or dropping a ball and the earth pulls the ball towards it. Well, that ball pulls the Earth towards it as well. Earth's a lot more massive, so it's not going to move a lot. You know, but some teeny tiny bit you could calculate. You could do a calculation, figure out the force, figure out, yeah, the, the Earth accelerated up a teeny tiny bit when you dropped that. You know, not something you're going to be able to easily measure, but you could calculate how tiny it would be. But it is there, and it does exist. Similar thing here. You're getting in very, very close, and that's, that offset won't be that far. But the sun is actually, if you trace out the path of the sun in space, it's actually following a little tiny circle, ellipse, around that center of mass. Around where their masses and distances balance out, essentially. So a lot more mass here. It's got to be a lot closer to that pivot point than the planet does with a lot less mass. Now, Kepler's laws that we looked at, we looked at those last time. Kepler's laws said the orbits were ellipses. Newton can actually prove that from his theory. His theory of gravity says that the orbits of the planets should be ellipses. Actually, they can be a little bit varied. Kepler was a little more specific for just our planets. But in general, any kind of orbit, Newton says not only are they ellipses, but they can actually be any conic section. Which just, just means that they could be a circle is one example, an ellipse is one example. But there are also other kinds of orbits like parabolas or hyperbolas. Parabola or hyperbola sort of look something like that. You may have seen those in a class. They, they don't close. They don't go back. So an object that had an orbit like this would come in, come in by the sun, and go out, and never come back. We have pl- objects in orbits like that. In fact, we've sent some out. You know, Spacecraft that are sent that, escape from the, that are escaping from the solar system. They're on a hyperbolic or parabolic orbit, they're never going to come back. So they come in, they move, have moved around certain planets, now they're zipping out into space and they're never going to come back. Comets, some comets actually have orbits like this. They can come in close to the sun and get thrown out very, very quickly and never come back. So Newton can go through all of Kepler's laws, his first law, and talk about the ellipses. He can explain exactly why the planets move faster, closer to the sun, increased gravity. right? Closer to the sun, gravitational force is going to be stronger. If the force is stronger, the acceleration will be larger and it's going to move faster. As you get further away, it's going to be the opposite and it's going to slow down. And as I mentioned last time, Kepler's third law actually, Kepler's third law says that a cubed equals p squared. We looked at the distance from the, from the planet to the star compared to how long it takes to orbit. Newton actually comes up with one and one of, the, one of the labs we may look at a little bit later on does this and actually goes through and you can calculate masses of objects. And you can determine, determine the masses. We'll use that and look at it when we do. Let's look at stars' orbits. We can determine masses of stars based on how they orbit. We can determine masses of galaxies based on how they orbit. We can then determine masses in clusters of galaxies based on how everything is orbiting there. All right. Chapter 1. Alright, let me go over the summary here. Unless there are questions first. Newton, Kepler, Galileo. Kind of brush through a lot of astronomers there really quickly. Alright, the first models of the solar system were geocentric. So put the earth at the center. Big problem with that is that you could explain retrograde motion but you couldn't explain it easily. You had to make those weird, you have to have to have the Earth, the planet going around the Earth, but it didn't really go around the Earth. It went on a circle that went around a circle. So when you start going on a circle that goes around a circle, it doesn't really, it works. You can predict them and you can put as many circles as you want and as many speeds and sizes to make it work. But it doesn't have a good, easy explanation for the retrograde motion, that backwards motion of the planets. The heliocentric model did do that. Very easy to explain retrograde motion in that all we're doing is passing it up. We're passing the, we're passing the star. We're passing the planet, sorry. When Earth passes Mars it looks like it goes backwards. Galileo's observations, I went through all of those last time. I'll give you about six of them. <coughs> and they didn't prove anything about the Earth. So they didn't prove that the Earth went around the Sun. They proved that Venus went around the Sun. They gave a lot of evidence that supported the heliocentric model. But I just want to make it clear, they didn't really prove anything about the Earth. You could make a model with the Earth at the center that fit all of Galileo's observations. It just got harder and harder to begin to be able to accept it when there were so many other things. You know, why did the Earth have to be at the center? Wouldn't it be easier if we tried, if we had the Earth being one of the planets? Wouldn't that make for a much simpler solar system instead of sun orbiting the Earth, and everything else orbiting the Sun. Kepler, we mentioned Kepler last time, and I went through his three laws. Again, he found those from observation, so he took all the the numbers he looked at, all the numbers that Tycho had made, and came up with three laws of planetary motion, again, based just on what they'd observed. That explained that the planet's orbits were ellipses, that they move faster when they're closer to the Sun, and that there's a relationship between how far they are away from the planet and how fast they orbit the planet. So Kepler's Kepler's three laws, and you'll see three laws. Three laws scientists like three laws. So you'll see you know, gravity was by itself there, but Kepler's three laws. We did Newton's three laws. We've got a couple, one or two others that have groups of three laws that we'll come up with. All right. And we talked about the Newton's laws of motion. I went through those at the end last time. They can explain Kepler's findings. Kepler didn't make the observations. Kepler made the findings based on Tycho's observations. So he actually could explain, how those, could explain how those worked. So Kepler's were just found. Here's what it is. I find that there are ellipses. I'm not telling you why there are an ellipse. I'm just saying here's the numbers. There are an ellipse. Newton came up with the theory, the theory of gravity, to explain why that has to be the case. And in fact, Newton had to do a lot more than that. Not only did he have to come up with gravity, but in order to solve all of his qu- equations, he had to invent a whole new branch of math. So if you've ever taken calculus or are going to take calculus, you get to ba- blame Sir Isaac Newton for developing calculus and actually coming up with developing a whole new branch of mathematics you know, as a graduate student in order to solve the equation he was trying to solve. You couldn't solve it based on what the math was at the time. Finally, gravitational force between two masses depends on the masses themselves and depends on how far they are away. So if the masses are bigger, the force is stronger. If the masses are smaller, less force. If they're closer together, force gets stronger. Further away, force gets less. The thing to note that I should have mentioned before and I didn't is that if the two objects have mass, this force is never zero. No matter how far away I put them, 15 billion light years away, let's if you square, put that into kilometers and square it, that's a heck of a big number, but it's still not going to make it zero. It's going to make it an incredibly tiny force, but it's not going to be zero. So that means, even as the Voyager probes are traveling out and escaping from the solar system, the sun is still pulling on them, not enough to stop them and pull them back, the earth is still pulling on them, you're still pulling on them, you know, calculate your force, get your mass, get the probe's mass, get the distance, how far away, you know, you're exerting some force on it. It's tiny. It's, it's almost zero, but it will never be zero. Even at the edge to the edge of the universe, there would still be some slight force between those two objects. It never will actually become zero. All right. Questions on chapter one? Nope. we're ready for the second chapter. or third. Ch- ready for chapter two, the third chapter. Don't worry, it gets worse when we hit chapter four. Alright, light and matter. So, Very beautiful picture of a nebula there. Probably see some of those, maybe see one of those for a picture of the day later. We had a kind of nebula earlier. This is a little bit more of a star forming region. Instead of a dead star, this is more of a region where stars form. You see the reddish glow there, and you'll notice that in a lot of images where stars are forming. The reddish glow is telling us where the hydrogen is. And we're going to look at this in more detail. But when you excite hydrogen atoms, they give off energy. And they'll give off energy that looks primarily red. And we'll probably look at that next week in, next week in lab. Probably next week I'll do a, we'll do a lab that looks at some of the light and how that, how that works. So what we're going to look at is talk about information from the skies, waves. What are waves? So you can look at things like you're familiar with some, you're familiar with water waves. There's also light waves, which are completely different. You got sound waves, all different kinds of waves. Some are related, some are completely different types. But they all have properties that are the same. You can talk about, for any kind of wave, you can talk about a wavelength. You can talk about a frequency, how, fa- how often the, the waves pass you. And that works for any kind of wave, and we'll relate that to both of them. The electromagnetic spectrum. We tend to talk about light. When you say light, you mean visible light. What do you see? But the electromagnetic spectrum is really much more than that. There is a lot more, there are a lot more kinds of light than just visible light. Those visible light's just a little tiny, teeny tiny portion of the spectrum that your eyes happen to be sensitive to. It's what your eyes happen to see. Because the sun emits lots of visible light. So our eyes develop to be sensitive to visible light. The electromagnetic spectrum also includes things that go to either edge of that, like infrared radiation, ultraviolet radiation, x-rays, gamma rays, radio waves. They're all the same type of radiation as light. All they have are different energies, different wavelengths, different amounts of energy in each one. But they're the same type of light, same type of process that creates each of them. There's a couple different types of radiation. The one we're going to talk about right now and for most of the class is what we call thermal radiation, which just depends thermal heat. It depends on the temperature of an object. So that's the one we're going to look at here. We will talk about a non-thermal radiation towards the end of the, co- under the course, of a different type of radiation. But for most of what we look at in stars and galaxies, thermal radiation is much, is much simpler and works for most of them. Spectroscopy, how we learn about everything in the sky. You know, we can't go and experiment on the sun, right? I can't go get a piece of the sun, bring it into the laboratory and see what does it do? You know, I can't, all I can do is look at it. It's a big difference between astronomy and a lot of other sciences, you know. A geologist can bring rocks and take them apart and see what's going on, what's there, can analyze them. You know, a biologist can dissect something. Chemists can take chemicals and put them together and see, and see what's happening. Physicists can explore with different objects and, you know, what's, you know, how do, how do they work. Astronomers don't have that adva- advantage for the most part. Yeah, you can look at moon rocks that have been brought back. So you can study a few things. We've got you know, pieces. We've got the explorer on Mars, the rovers that are looking around. And you know, we're there and get some kind of samples. But for the most part, when you get beyond those few little rocks here that we can explore, most of what we have to do depends on the light we get from it. So we can look at the light from the sun. That's what we need to use to learn everything about it. Light from stars. Light from galaxies. That's all we have. We don't have. You can't can't bring a galaxy in and experiment on it. You can't say, well what if it were twice as massive? What happens if I increase its mass? You don't have that that advantage that other scientists have when you do things in astronomy. So, but it's amazing that what you can figure out based on just the spectrum. Just those, just these spectral lines and just spectroscopy. Just looking at the light and breaking it down into into its components, you can learn things like how massive a star is, what its temperature is, um, how it's moving. You can determine its velocities. So you can determine a whole bunch of things, what it's made up of, and and many more. You can determine all these things just based on the light that that it's coming from it. And one of the first things we'll look at that, we'll look at the compositions early in here, and then we'll start looking at the Doppler effect, which tells us about the motions. How does that star move? So what is electromagnetic radiation? Well, it's energy being transmitted through space. There's no physical connection. You know, it's not like you're heating up a pot and it gets hot because it's touching something, touching a flame, touching you know, an mag- uh, electric coil that heats it up. It travels through space without any physical connection. And it's just a varying electric and magnetic fields. So as we say, an electromagnetic wave, it's an electric field. which generates a magnetic field? which generates an electric field? And that just travels through space. The most common example of it is light. So visible light, as you see the image here. And you'll see this little um, key down at the bottom. This is the entire electromagnetic spectrum. You'll see this on a lot of the pictures shown here. In fact you may have seen it on ones before, I don't know if we had anything else before. But this has highlighted V for visible light. So that's telling you that that image is is visible light. You will see images later on that are in radio, infrared, ultraviolet, x-rays, or gamma rays when you look at all of those. We'll look at images in those as well. And we'll find that the universe looks quite different depending on which one that you look at but electromagnetic radiation itself can be all of those. It's not confined just to visible light. That's just one example, the most common example that we're used to. How do waves work? Well, here's a diagram of a wave. Right. We know what a wave looks like. Think of it as a water wave. Again, a light wave would be, would be similar. Much, much smaller. Very, very small waves. But would be similar, has the same uh, parts to it. Crest is the peak, the highest area that you get. Trough is the lowest part of the wave. So when you're looking at a water wave, the crest and the trough. The amplitude is how high the wave gets over sort of its average area. Average area is what they call the undisturbed state. If there was no wave, the water would all be right here. So an amplitude is how high it gives above that or below it at the peak would be the same. And the wavelength. The wavelength is just the distance between the successive peaks. So if you're talking about water waves, they might be a few feet or a few meters apart. If you're talking about light waves, you're talking about nanometers apart. You know, hundreds of nanometers apart between the peaks. And the wave will move in some direction. It does not actually transport the material. So it's not really moving anything. The water waves move material to some extent, but they move much the material moves much slower than the wave itself. The wave can actually move a lot faster. Sound waves will move a lot faster. And you've got the gas control up here. If I turn it on, I won't do that, we don't really need to be sniffing gas, but if I turn it on, you hear a hiss of the gas coming out. And you'll hear that. Almost immediately in the front and the back of the room because sound travels that quick. But the people up here will start smelling the gas a lot quicker. The actual material to move takes a longer time to diffuse through the classroom than the sound does. The sound will be there, back there, you know, almost instantaneously when I would have turned it on. The smell, the actual gas would take a longer time to diffuse to the back of the room. Same thing happens in a water wave. You know, yes, things can slowly move through them. But if you watch something, you know, something bobbing in the waves, you know, the waves keep moving past it, it might be slowly moving out, but it pretty much just stays in one spot and bobs up and down. Really, the material doesn't, you're not not talking about physically moving the water, it's a disturbance that is moving. So that means that it's not really even the same water that's moving. The water is pretty much staying in one spot and just going up and down, not moving from side to side. Near as quickly as the wave is, the disturbance moves through faster than the material. So here's the example looking at that. Here's the water wave. Water moves up and down. So if you, put, if, you throw, if you have a stick floating in a pond and you throw a rock in to make waves, that stick is going to bounce up and down right where it was pretty much. Yes, there's some energy and it will move a little bit, but pretty much it's just going to bounce up and down where it was and not move as the waves move past it. So it's the water that's going up and down the water, that's tra- the water that's going up and down, the disturbance is what bring, transports the energy. And in a water wave it can transport energy, you know, can do, get enough waves, you can do damage to the next shore, you can start eating away at the shore because energy, the way as the waves hit it, are receiving energy. But you can also transmit energy in terms of electromagnetic radiation. So electromagnetic light waves can also another way to transport energy. Now, some of the other terms that I'm going to give you here, again, defined to waves. I talked about the wavelength already, the distance between the two, p- two crests of the wave, two adjacent crests. The frequency is if you're standing at one point, so you're standing in the water, and you count how many waves hit you every second. Okay, In water waves, that's probably not necessarily a good one because you don't get a whole lot of waves hitting you each second, but do it per minute. Okay, the same idea. You know, how many waves? You stand there for a minute and you got hit by ten waves, twenty waves, thirty waves. That tells you the frequency, how often you're getting hit by that wave. That would work for light waves as well. The frequency would be you pick some point, how many wavelengths, how many wave crests pass you every second. So second is the official one, that's how you actually do the calculation in terms of trying to understand it from like a water wave point of view, which makes sense to you, something you can. You, know, you can't imagine sitting there watching the red light waves passing your eye and counting how, how many passing you each second. You can't do that. But you can imagine standing in the water and having you know, 10 waves hit you every minute, 20 waves, 30 waves. You know, and you can tell the difference between that, how often you're getting hit. So that's frequency. Period is the time between successive crests. So if you're standing in the water and you get you know, a wave hits you, and five seconds later another, hits you, the period would be 5 seconds. If it's 10 seconds before the other one hits you, then it would be 10 seconds. Now things like water waves could change, right? Depending on the water conditions, you might get more or less at a given time and they could change. For light, they'll stay the same. For a certain color of light, certain wavelength, the period and frequency would remain unchanged. They'll always be the same. So if I pick out red light of a very specific Uh, frequency of a very specific wavelength, it's never going to change. Its period and frequency are a specific number. And there's a relationship between the two, which just said that the period is one divided by the frequency, frequency is one divided by the period. So if you know one, you know the other. They're just inverted. So if you have ten waves hitting you every second, got a real lot of waves are just tearing in there on the the shore. Ten waves every second, um, that would be Your frequency, 10 waves per second. Your period would be 1 tenth of a second per wave. A wave would hit you every tenth of a second. Again, for water waves, that's a little overkill. That's a lot. You know, even not not even getting that down in Louisiana now. You're not getting 10 waves every second. But just to give you some numbers that you can think about there. Okay, wavelength I defined a little bit before. Just the distance between successive crests. So one peak, the next peak. If you're looking at the water waves, you know, they might be a few feet apart, a few meters apart, a few inches apart if you've got lots of waves coming in, depending on exactly how close they are. Then we can figure out the velocity. The velocity is the speed at which the crests move. Again, it's not the speed at which the water moves, it's the speed at which the crests are moving. So they're moving a lot faster than the water. And you can figure out that velocity if you know the wavelength and the period. So how long is the wave? So it's, you know, wavelengths are one meter across, one, one meter between waves. The period is one second, one hits you every second. Then the velocity is one meter per second. So waves are coming every, every second, you're getting every, they're, they're traveling at a velocity of one meter per second. Again, the water is not traveling at that speed. Just the disturbance in the waves are. Now, For light waves, and that counts any of the electromagnetic, again when I say light, I don't necessarily, light can mean infrared, it can mean ultraviolet, it can mean visible light, it could mean x-rays, gamma rays, radio waves, any of that, that velocity is always the same. That velocity is the speed of light. So while water waves can change, light cannot. Light has only one specific velocity that it can travel at. So light waves, radio waves, if we send a radio signal to the nearest star, it takes four years to get there, because that radio wave can only travel at the speed of light. Now some of the other terms you'll see. Diffraction is how waves bend when they go around an obstacle. Here's the example with the breakwater. Right, Supposed to keep the waves from coming straight in, kind of deflects them a little bit. It doesn't cut them off nice and sharp, as you notice there. You see how they kind of bend around it and get it, and get in there. Waves have this property. Light waves do this as well. Light waves will bend around, a proper, around, around an object. And one example of that is if you've looked at an image of a star, you see an image of a star often, a bright star taken. Almost has that little star pattern to it, right? It's got those little spikes to it. That only occurs because of diffraction. That is the tel- that is as you're seeing part of the telescope and what most of these have and we'll talk about them in a couple chapters when you have telescopes is that if you're looking down the tube of a telescope and your mirror's way down at the bottom there, the light reflects back up and then astronomers put another little mirror there to redirect the light either off to the side or to straight back down. Well, that light, that mirror can't just hover in space, you know. No anti-gravity just to keep it staying where it is. So you have some sort of support. It's attached to the edge of it. And when the light comes around that, it gets diffracted and gives us the same pattern. You actually see that kind of image of this mechanism that's holding the secondary optics in place. And you end up seeing that in a star. So you'll see that in any any image that was taken with a telescope that has this kind of mount. You'll see those, especially in very bright stars. So, diffraction is something that we see, and we'll see that in images, any, any images of stars that we look at. Interference. Waves add, waves add together, waves subtract. So you can add two waves, and you can get something <coughs> bigger than either of the two that went into it. You can get something smaller. You can get nothing. If You add two waves that are completely opposite each other. And they do that with those, like the sound-canceling sound headphones. right? They detect what's coming in invert the signal and send the same signal back to you at the same time. And essentially, can't, doesn't probably not perfect, but it minimizes the amount of sound you get from outside. So you know you could do two very loud noises. You know, if you've got loud noise coming in, it's going to send you an inverted loud noise. And two big loud noises coming into your ears together, because of the way the waves work, would actually cancel out. You also see this at you know, the water parks, right? You get the waves, you go to the wave pools, and you get real big waves in some places, and you get real little waves in others. Well, it's the same waves that are starting out at the front, a couple of things generating the big waves, and as they come you get some places where those two waves add together, and you end up getting much bigger waves, and you get some where they cancel out, and you have you know, some pots where you can stand in there, and there's you know, little waves lapping over you, but nothing, nothing big. That's the same kind of interference. Those two, the waves are exactly the same. It's just how the two waves add up together, or more than two waves. It doesn't have to be just two. You could add 10 different waves together and get something similar. So you may get something larger. You may cancel it out completely. But what you see is not this wave and this wave. You don't see two waves together. You just see one result wave is all you'll see. OK. And then these are the electromagnetic waves. Water waves, sound waves. You know, I talk about them with electromagnetic waves to give you some examples of how the waves work. But there are some big differences. Water waves have to travel in water. right? They have water wave. Sound waves have to travel in something. You know? Sound waves from me are traveling through the atmosphere to you, you know, through the atmosphere in the room to you. They've got to travel through something. There was a vacuum here. Other than that, we'd all be suffocated. You wouldn't hear me talking, right? My, my lips could keep moving, but no sound would be making it to you, because they need, the sound waves need to travel through something. Electromagnetic waves are different; they do not need a medium to travel. They don't need to travel through something. That was only realized. What has it been? About 100 and, 120, 130 years now. I mean, before that, there was actually thought. I mean, waves were waves; they all had to travel through something. So the idea was that space was filled with this ether, you know, just some diffuse material that allowed the light waves to travel. Again, they proved that that wasn't the case a while, a couple, about a little over 100 years ago now. But it was something thought thought: if you have to travel through something. It's a good thing in a way, since we know there is nothing out there, that light doesn't have to travel through something. Otherwise, it wouldn't be very pleasant here on Earth. Right? If light waves couldn't travel through the vacuum, no stars, you wouldn't be able to see them. They might be generating light, but it can't get through the space to see, to you. Just like sound can't. You wouldn't be able to see the moon, wouldn't be able to see the sun. I mean, light just couldn't travel through them, you wouldn't be able to see anything. So it's fortunate that electromagnetic waves do not need a medium. The way they're created, and I'm not going into much details in this, get into much more physics than we want to do, but it's, Excel- charged particles moving that actually create these electromagnetic waves. So you accelerate the charged particles to create them. But I'm not going into much more detail, detail than that. Let me see what is... just see where I am. Well, let me finish up with... Ma- let me start about magnetic fields which are a little bit different and then we'll take a break and do our, do our lab for the day. The magnetic fields and electric fields are are combined together in an electromagnetic wave. So you have an electric field which varies, which gets stronger and weaker. And it turns out that a changing electric field generates a magnetic field. So that electric field changes and generates a magnetic field. Then that one changes and generates an electric field. So it's a a continuous process. One one, One forms the other, the other forms the next one. And they just keep going through space. The magnetic field here that we're familiar with is something that's Uh, This is the Earth's magnetic field. And it will exert forces on charged particles. That's another good thing. That protects us. We've got a lot of charged particles coming from the sun. If we did not have a magnetic field, they come zooming straight into Earth. And we get hit with a lot more charged particles than we would otherwise. As it is now, they get deflected by the Earth's magnetic field. They kind of follow along the magnetic field lines. And they do still strike the Earth, but not all over but they primarily strike way down at the poles. So south pole, north magnetic pole, that's where they primarily strike. These are actually the particles that cause the aurora. So if you look at the glow in the sky, you always see it, the northern lights, the southern lights. That's the particles from the sun that would normally be striking us. They all get funneled down these magnetic field lines and they do strike the atmosphere. But only way up in northern, northern areas and way down in the far, far southern areas. Unless they're extremely intense. The more intense they get, you can actually see them down at even our latitude here. And in fact, some of the most extreme ones have been visible. You know, There's been some of them visible down in the southern US, in Florida. And one of the worst ones, I think, there was actually discussed that there were aurora visible in Hawaii. That was like 100 and, 150, 160 years ago. There was an extreme storm that distorted things, distorted the Earth's magnetic field that much that material, instead of just striking up here, was actually getting all the way down towards Hawaii. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And that the covers of a lot of the introductions to waves. And then I will pick up on Wednesday and we'll see how much further we get through it. We should get a chunk of the way through it. We probably won't get through the last section or two. And, but whatever exam wise, whatever we get through on Wednesday is all I'll cover. I won't, I'm not going to hold you for material that I haven't actually talked about yet. So exam wise, certainly all chapter zero, all of chapter one. Chapter two, we'll probably get through... Where is it? Slides. We'll probably get to the electromagnetic spectrum, thermal radiation. We'll probably get at least through spectroscopy and hopefully into... Probably at least through spectroscopy and the spectral laws. I don't know if we'll get into spectral lines. Probably we'll not get to the Doppler effect before the exam. So, that's what I'd be leaning towards. But of course, you'll know for sure... We'll know for sure on Wednesday exactly where, exactly where we've gotten. Any questions there? Otherwise, take a break and we'll start in a few minutes. Yeah? For the quiz... Yes. We- It's, you you have to do it all at once. It's only 15 minutes once you start it, it starts a timer. If you exit out, then it's still timing you. So, yeah. Other questions? But yeah, as I say, anything you're going to have with you, if you're going to have your book, 15 minutes doesn't, usually people do them in class, they finish them in 10 minutes. You know, 5, 10 minutes, a lot of people finish them. So relatively quick. if you're looking stuff up, you're going to try to look up details and confirm each answer, you're not going to have time. So, uh, what I recommend, you get three. I put three on each page. There's 12 questions. So, I, lo- I look through them, go through each one, read, read them quickly, answer. If you know two of them, answer those two, and it'll save it automatically as you go from page to page. Then go back and look at the one. So, if you can go through in the first five minutes and answer, hopefully, six or seven questions, I'm hoping you know then go back and look up but don't waste your time you'll spend 5 minutes looking up number 1 if it throws you go to number 2 because going to it's going to be bad it'll be bad otherwise okay all right let's go ahead and take a break and we'll come back in a little bit and we'll start on the I'll get the lab stuff set up here